The conversion to PayPal is going really well. We're at about 50%, which is pretty unbelievable if you ask me. So thank you so much. And if you haven't made the switch yet, please consider doing so. A word on the Civilization 4 giveaway. It was mentioned to me that this might look like an illegal lottery. And given how bad the last few months have been going, I wouldn't be surprised if I got busted for running an illegal international gambling ring and Sam Fisher came bursting through my window. So hopefully to avoid that possibility, I'm killing the raffle. So first, if you'd like a refund for your membership because you signed up for a chance at Civ 4, let me know and I'll refund you right away. Second, I still have two copies of this thing and they need to be given away. So here's what we're going to do. If you're signed up as a member, you're entered automatically. If you aren't, but you'd like a copy of the game, just send an email to thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com and let me know, and I'll include you. No purchase necessary and all that stuff. Seriously, guys, I just wanted to give away a couple copies of an old favorite game of mine as a thank you for switching over to PayPal. I wasn't looking to turn into Al Capone. Fair? All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 162, Emperor Conewolf, Emperor Charlemagne, and the World. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Mike, Thomas, and Claudia for signing up already. The other day I went to a lecture on Oregon history, and I was stunned by what I saw. A series of biographies, disconnected from each other, and more importantly, disconnected from a larger vision. Instead, we were given a granular, blow-by-blow -blow account of the lives of a few people without any context of why we should care, what these people represented, and how they factored into Oregon history. And when I say granular, I mean granular, as in we were told about the plays that they were in when they attended high school. The worst part, though, is it seems that their only historical importance was the fact that the historian chose to obsess over their lives. There were no major accomplishments, and if they were representative of a larger movement occurring within society, the historian chose to keep that part secret. This is a cardinal sin in my view, and I believe it's why people say they hate history. They don't hate history. That is not history. That's stalking. If I gave you a lecture on what my neighbor did on a daily basis for the last five years, you wouldn't put me up for tenure. You'd report me to the cops. Context matters. And these historians were from Ivy League institutions. How on earth did they miss that lesson? You cannot teach, and you definitely can't teach to a general audience without putting things into context. Needless to say, throughout most of the lecture, I probably looked like someone had recently opened the Ark of the Covenant. It was truly face-meltingly awful, but it did give me a strong sense of what the BHP needs to be and what my job is with regard to teaching you. <laughs> I haven't even had coffee yet. All this energy is just coming from me thinking about that experience. But let's calm down here for a second, Jamie. All right, today, let's briefly talk about the world in context, since we have largely just been focused upon our main character. And no, I'm not talking about Cone Wolf or Offa. The main character is, and has always been, Britain. But sometimes it feels like it's an island adrift and alone. 
when in actual fact, there's a whole world out there that's been going on. And happily, it's the year 800. So I think I'll make a tradition that we'll do these check-ins and give you a rough outline of where the rest of the world is at least once every 100 years. And this is a whistle-stop tour. It's also entirely reliant on the material available. So there are going to be obvious gaps in this. The purpose here is not to teach you everything about the world as it stood in 800 CE in a few minutes, but rather is to give you a few headliners that might help you put all of this into context with what else is going on in the world. And obviously, what you might have heard about in other podcasts, books, or history shows that you've been engaged in. So here we go. To start with, we ended the last episode with a brief teaser of what was happening on the continent. So Pope Leo III was on the lamb, having been curb-stomped. But Charlemagne welcomed him with open arms and made such a big deal out of him that their meeting was even the subject of an epic poem. Now, the people who orchestrated the attack claimed that Leo had committed adultery and perjury. Pretty serious charges. So Charlemagne invited them to visit his court and explain themselves. The trouble was that Charlemagne wasn't convinced by what they offered. And so he returned Pope Leo III to his seat in Rome, with a personally assigned armed escort. How's that for imperial power? Soon thereafter, in November, Charlemagne joined the Pope, and on the 1st of December were told that he held a council on all the adultery, perjury, and middle-aged non-consensual street fighting that had been going on in Rome. By the end of the council, the only thing Charlemagne decided was conclusively proven was that the conspirators organized a group of thugs to beat up the Pope. So, on the 23rd of December, Pope Leo III swore an oath that he was innocent of the charges against him. And Charlemagne took him at his word and exiled the Pope's enemies. When you think about it, that's brutal, because where are they going to go? Charlemagne pretty much held all of the continental west. But whatever. The Pope was back in charge, and the grouchy friends and family of Pope Hadrian were backpacking through, I don't know, Estonia? And I'm sure it's a complete coincidence that two days later, on Christmas Day, Pope Leo declared Charlemagne the Emperor of the Romans. It was just a thoughtful Christmas present between friends, and it had nothing to do with Charlemagne's unflinching support of Leo at a time when his enemies were treating him like a punching bag in a fancy hat. In fact... To hear Charlemagne's biographer write about it, he didn't know it was coming. He says that if he wasn't surprised, he wouldn't have accepted the honor. He was just taken off guard. But that is incredibly doubtful. He had been maneuvering to gain ever-increasing levels of power, had been acting as the protector of the faith, and, with the weakened government in Constantinople, he was the obvious choice. So I'm pretty sure he knew it was coming. Hell, I think it was his idea. And his new title really ticked off the Byzantines. But they were in no position to really offer any sort of challenge. They weren't even in a position to offer military security to Rome. So they could do little more than just stew. But hey, we now have the Holy Roman Empire. Merry Christmas. What else is going on in the world? Well, right across the sea in Ireland... Things were a bit like they were in the Anglo-Saxon lands. Christian, fractured, and dealing with the sudden appearance of Viking raiders. And, just like our Anglo-Saxon friends, the Irish were occasionally consumed with the machinations of their royal families, jockeying for power, but unable to gain true dominance. 
But when it comes to jockeying for power, few can do it quite like the Byzantine Empire. The truth of it is that the remnants of the old Roman Empire were getting ugly. So ugly, in fact, that it's not too surprising that Leo wanted a Frank to head up the Roman Empire instead of a Byzantine. Here's what was going on. The wife of the late Roman Emperor Leo IV, Irene, had been ruling for a while as regent on behalf of her young son, Constantine. But not everybody appreciated that. And so the army mutinied and put her son, Emperor Constantine VI, on the throne. And then, a few years later, Emperor Constantine made his mom, Irene, co-ruler. And that was a mistake, it turns out, because it wasn't long before Irene blinded her son and declared herself empress once more. Northumbria could really learn something from the Byzantine Empire. Not even Oswiu was that ruthless. As you know, Scandinavia has been going through a cultural shift, and their raiders are starting to come to our shores. There's also been a growing population and an increase in trade in the region, and one that we spoke about in detail on the members' feed. In the Islamic world, the previous century has seen them push into the west, and then forcefully pushed out of some of it. And during that period, the caliphate relocated itself to Baghdad, though the powerful Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad was in decline and it essentially lost control of Africa west of Egypt, which is why we see the Aglabid dynasty established in Tunisia, Algeria, and Sicily. In addition to internal issues, there are also doctrinal splits between the Sunni and Shiites, and recently between the Imami and the Ismaili Shiites. Technologically, we see that the Islamic world had access to papermaking from the East for about the last 50 years. While many of us were scraping, stretching, and drying sheepskin in order to have something to write on, they were making paper. I'm sure that the Chinese would have thought it cute that people were excited about paper since they had it for centuries, but this was a really big deal. So much so that it was kept secret from the West, and it would be hundreds of years before European sheep would be cut out of the publishing business and only be responsible for the modern duties of providing wool, food, and comfort. Further, Islamic scientists were making serious advances in medicine, mathematics, astronomy, and alchemy, which was basically an early form of chemistry. Now, things weren't completely stagnant in the West. We did have crop rotation for the last about 40 years, and we have been in the Carolingian Renaissance for about the last 20 years. But the advances that we saw, even with the aid of the Carolingian Renaissance, were nothing compared to what was happening in the Islamic world. In northern India, the powerful Gurjara Pratihara dynasty was continuing to unite the region and push back against the advance of Islam. It was also preparing to conquer the nearby kingdom of Kanwaj. Further east, the Tibetan Empire had recently sacked the Tang capital. Typically, you don't think of Tibet throwing elbows, but this was actually the height of their empire. They stretched into the Bay of Bengal and were a force to be reckoned with. The Uyghur Khaganate was ruling over Mongolia and was sufficiently powerful enough to extract tributes from the nearby Tang dynasty. In China, the Tang dynasty still had some gas left in the tank, but it did appear to be on the decline. And as a side note, at around this point in time, most of China was Zen Buddhist. Daenerys Stormborn, the first of her name, Queen of the Andals, the Roynar and the First Men, Protector of the Realm, Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, the Breaker of Chains, and the Mother of Dragons, is still currently residing in Marine as their queen. 
In Japan, the capital had just been moved over to Kyoto. Culturally, they were in the Heian period, which was the height of the imperial court, though the real power appeared to be centralizing around the mighty Fujiwara clan. In Southeast Asia, the Sergevaya Empire was growing increasingly more powerful and influential in the region, and the Khmer Empire was right on the verge of being established. In the Americas, something was happening. But as for a clear indication of what was happening on the year 800, if there's a source for it, I couldn't find it. As for large portions of Africa, same story there too. There were some powerful empires active on the continent, such as the Kanem Empire in Central Africa, and there were also a variety of distinct cultural civilizations. But as for what they were doing at that particular time, I couldn't find anything like an Anglo-Saxon chronicle, but for Africa. There might be detailed chronologies out there for Africa and the Americas, and if there are, I'd love to hear about them. But they are a bit outside of my wheelhouse, and I just wanted to give you a very quick tour of what was happening, rather than an in-depth investigation like you're accustomed to getting on the events of Britain. So, that woefully broad and simplistic overview hopefully will help you place what was going on in Britain into context, at least a little bit. Alright, let's get back to our island. When we left off, King Erdwulf of Northumbria had killed a potential rival of his, Almond, son of King Alred. And that really ticked off the Mercian town of Darby, where they declared him a martyr and formed a cult venerating the slain Aethling. Not exactly the sort of response you'd expect from the Mercians. And it looks like Erdwulf suspected the same thing that I do, that Mercia and its king Conewulf was looking to play an active role in Northumbrian politics, maybe even seeking to bring it within the Mercian hegemony. And so, in 801, King Erdwulf decided that he would do something about it. He was Northumbrian, and so it wasn't like he was going to hug it out. These men were killers. And while they had been distracted as of late by their burning desire to kill other Northumbrian nobles and the occasional Viking raider, deep down, what they loved most was killing Mercians. It was a national pastime, and they were good at it. Even Aethelflaed, daughter of Oswiu, had gotten in on the action killing Peda, son of Penda. So this was only going to go one way. War. We're told that King Eardwolf gathered his war bands and invaded Mercia. But King Conewulf of Mercia was no pussycat. His people were famed warriors, having killed kings and nobles of virtually every major English kingdom. They completed their Mercian battle bingo sheets long ago. Hell, most of them were checked off during Penda's reign alone. So this was going to be a major showdown between classic heavyweight champions. And yet our sources have barely anything to say about it. Reading between the lines, it seems like the invasion was inconclusive, and peace was arranged on equal terms. Here's what Simeon of Durham says, quote, Erdwulf, king of the Northumbrians, led an army against Conewulf, king of Mercians, because he had given asylum to his enemies. He also, collecting an army, obtained very many auxiliaries from other provinces, having made a long expedition among them. At length, with the advice of the bishops and chiefs of the Angles on either side, they made peace through the kindness of the king of the Angles. End quote. What? What were the terms? Where did they fight? How many battles were there and how big were their forces? All of that was skipped over. 
I'm grateful that we at least had Simeon writing about this, and the scribes weren't pouring salt in the wound by telling us about the migratory patterns of birds, but the lack of detail still does sting. How many times have we had major political events occurring, and the monks chose to tell us about the death of a minor priest, or a fever dream about dragons? You know what? I'm adding monks to the list. Victorians, Normans, and monks are why we can't have nice things. We're also told that Archbishop Aethelherd of Canterbury traveled to Rome at around the middle of 801. He was already in contact with the Pope, now that neither of them were on the lamb. But what he wanted was for there to be a single sea governing the English kingdoms south of the Humber. So he went to Rome to ask for it. And he got it. The Pope declared that Aethelherd had authority over all the churches that were ever subject to the Sea of Canterbury. In one fell swoop, the independent Archbishopric of Lichfield suddenly became a lot less independent. At about this same point, it looks like, despite Alcuin's pleas, they stripped Archbishop Higebert of Lichfield of his pallium. That would have been a tough day for regular Bishop Higebert. But, as you might remember from earlier episodes, this was all part of the plan for unifying the Southern English Church and thus preventing some of the power struggles and confusion that could come with having multiple equally powerful archbishops governing over a single mercy and hegemony. Can you imagine the chaos that could happen if the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of Lichfield were both claiming to speak for the church and giving contrary advice to King Conewulf, who would have been responsible to them both equally? It would have been like God had schizophrenia. So this was a good development for Mercia. And while the sea wasn't moved to mercy and controlled London as King Conewulf wanted, things were still going pretty well for him, because his brother, King Cuthred, was sitting the throne of Kent, and was even minting his own coins at about this same time. Meanwhile, another brother of King Conewulf's, his name was Cholwulf, presumably just to make family dinner confusing, it's like naming your sons Christian and Christopher, and your daughters Kristen and Christina. Anyway, Cholwulf was serving as a Mercian elderman. So, this was a really powerful family. In fact, we see four other eldermen who had Chol in their names, who might have been relatives of the king, because that's kind of how the Anglo-Saxons rolled. At some point around here, Quenthrith, who was King Conewulf's daughter, also became the abbess of Minster and Thanet, which was the richest of the Kentish royal nunneries. We also see the Kentish monastery at Reculver being treated as a possession of King Conewulf's family. And several years earlier, in 798, the monastery at Glastonbury was assigned to Chinahelm, King Conewulf's son. The following year, in 802, we see Cunred, who, surprise, surprise, was yet another kinsman of King Conewulf, while well, he became the abbot of St. Augustine's in Canterbury. See what I mean about Conewulf? That is how you build dynastic power. A king on the throne, a son in line, a brother on another throne, another brother as an elderman, a daughter holding the richest nunnery in Kent, a couple other monasteries in hand, a kinsman holding St. Augustine, and four other eldermen who look suspiciously like kinsmen as well. And meanwhile, he had peace with Wessex, control over Kent and several other neighboring kingdoms, had pushed back Northumbria, and really, the only southern kingdom that might have been independent in this period was East Anglia. But the record is silent on that kingdom, and I really doubt it was going well for them. Oh, 
and he was friendly with a pope who just happened to be buddy-buddy with Emperor Charlemagne. Conewulf was doing his job very well, and it's no surprise that it was his dynasty that survived when most others didn't. It's also no surprise that he was calling himself emperor. And then, on that same year, King Beortric of Wessex died. Now, he was the king who was married to Offa's daughter and who had a peace treaty with King Conewulf after what looks like a bit of a scuffle. So through Beortric, Wessex had been at least somewhat friendly to Mercia. But now he was dead. And to make matters worse, Egbert of Wessex was back. To remind you, Egbert was the son of King Aelmund of Kent. He was from a shadowy dynasty, possibly a descendant of King Inna of Wessex's brother, though he might very well have been part of the old Kentish dynasty that Offa was hunting. It's hard to say for sure. But anyway, Egbert was the son of that King of Kent, who was connected somehow to Wessex and Kent. He was also the same guy who was driven into exile by Offa and Beortric, which paved the way for Beortric's throne. That Egbert. Well, now that both of the men who drove him into exile were dead, he was back. And that does seem quick, doesn't it? Not only that, but definitive. Usually, when you have someone returning from exile, there's some sort of civil war or disorder that needs to be sorted out. But here we have Egbert walking in and taking the throne. No muss, no fuss. How did he pull that off? Well, it seems like he had an ace up his sleeve, because guess where he'd been spending his time in exile? Yep, the same place that all of Offa's enemies went. Frankia. In later records, we're told that King Egbert had been studying the art of rule while in the court of Charlemagne. And I would imagine that would have been a good place to learn. He would have also been close to the major events that were shaking the foundations of Europe. Hell, he might have been present when the Pope fled to Charlemagne's protection. And he was there at the time when Charlemagne elevated him from king to emperor. He would have also been exposed to the great thinkers that Charlemagne brought into his court. Egbert would have likely learned a lot from his time in exile. And that was great for Wessex. However, look at this situation from King Conewulf's perspective. Charlemagne's relationship with Mercia had been rocky, to say the least. Not only that, but he had been working to develop ties with Northumbria, the Franks had ties with Kent going way back, and he was also building ties with Wessex. All of which were long-standing enemies of Mercia. Now, our records regarding what was going on in Wales are sparse, but I wouldn't be too shocked to find out that Charlemagne was also perfecting his leek soup recipe. He was coming at this from all sides. And now, this Frankish protege was placed on the throne, probably with the support of Charlemagne, and possibly even with a bit of papal influence for good measure. I mean, he did ascend remarkably fast. And he came from a family that had more than its fair share of reasons to hate the Mercians, and was ruling over a kingdom that was powerful enough to remain somewhat independent even during the reign of Offa. Now that Conewulf had an open enemy to the north who was friendly with Charlemagne, you know, King Erdwulf, and another ally of Charlemagne's to the south who was probably not all that happy with Conewulf, Conewulf's family, or Mercy in general, King Egbert, I can imagine that Conewulf suddenly became a great deal more conservative with his interventionism, 
Those warbands might be needed at home. The vultures were circling, and it might be time to hunker down. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can find all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. It's that time again. Let's do a pub quiz and see what you've learned. Question one. When Charlemagne proposed his son marry Offa's daughter, what did Offa say? And what was Charlemagne's response? Question two. There was a Northumbrian monk who was the tutor for Charlemagne and his family. What was that monk's name? Question three. On June 8th, 793, the Vikings struck Lindisfarne. The scribes clearly thought that they should have seen this coming due to the number of signs that foretold the event. One of the signs was clearly supernatural, and it was either poetic license or they had something like ergot poisoning. What was that sign? Question four. If you are an enemy of King Offa and living in exile, based upon the record, what nation would most likely shelter you? Question five. When the Vikings struck Jero, what happened, and what was the result? Question 6. When Offa wrote to Charlemagne and told him that his merchants wanted the future shipments of black stones to be cut to spec, what did Charlemagne do? Question 7. Beyond giving us a sense of Charlie and Offa's relationship, why is that letter about the black stones important? Question 8. True or false? King Egfrith, son of Offa, died childless after sitting on the throne for less than a year. Question 9. True or false? Conewulf of Mercia claimed the title of Emperor before Charlemagne did. Question 10. The Archbishop of York and King Erdwulf of Northumbria were in open conflict, with the Archbishop even offering sanctuary to the king's rivals. Given that the king was a dangerous man who had killed rivals in the past, what did the archbishop start to do? All right, let's see how you did. Question one. When Charlemagne proposed his son marry Offa's daughter, what did Offa say? And what was Charlemagne's response? Offa accepted, provided that his son would marry Charlemagne's daughter. And then Charlemagne threw an epic tantrum and broke off relations. Question two. There was a Northumbrian monk who was the tutor for Charlemagne and his family. What was that monk's name? Alcuin. Question three. On June 8th, 793, the Vikings struck Lindisfarne. The scribes clearly thought that they should have seen this coming due to the number of signs that foretold the event. One of the signs was clearly supernatural, and it was either poetic license or they had something like ergot poisoning. What was that sign? They saw dragons. Question four. If you are an enemy of King Offa and living in exile, based upon the record, what nation would most likely shelter you? Francia. Question five. When the Vikings struck Jero, what happened? And what was the result? They got their butts kicked by the Northumbrians, 
and then they didn't return for more than a generation. Question six. When Offa wrote to Charlemagne and told him that his merchants wanted the future shipments of black stones to be cut to spec, what did Charlemagne do? He implied the request was unreasonable, and then he complained about the quality of British wool. Because Charlemagne. Question seven. Beyond giving us a sense of Charlie and Offa's relationship, why is that letter about the black stones important? Because it's the first known letter between European kings about trade. Question eight. True or false, King Egfrith, son of Offa, died childless after sitting on the throne for less than a year. True. Question nine. True or false, Conewulf of Mercia claimed the title of emperor before Charlemagne did. True. Question 10. The Archbishop of York and King Erdwulf of Northumbria were in open conflict, with the Archbishop even offering sanctuary to the king's rivals. Given that the king was a dangerous man who had killed rivals in the past, what did the Archbishop start to do? He formed a warband and started marching around with an army of his own. Okay, I hope you did well, and I'll see you on the next one.